0: Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We
1: behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ,
0: it shows us who salvation came at a great expense Jesus willingly drank the cup of wrath and took the penalty of sin and death upon himself the sin which he so despised he became so that we could be made righteous through belief in him is part three of Cheryl's message titled The New Covenant. This is the only way that man can be saved. For Jesus, the perfect
1: man, our God, to be crucified for us, He alone can establish the terms of salvation, to do it all for us. And even then, He's getting a visual of why it's Him alone, because the disciples who he chose. They can't even stay awake during this hour with him, let alone drink the cup. And they're heavy with sleep. And God shows Jesus this cup. What is this cup? You know, we talk about death. And when men talk about death, we're talking about the separation of the spirit, our personality from our body. Our personality goes to heaven and our body becomes a statue and then begins to decompose. There's no more life to it when the spirit leaves the body. But when the Bible speaks of death, it's the separation of man from God. And Jesus, when he would go to the cross, the cup he's looking at is separation from God. He who said, I always do those things that please my father. I have lived my entire existence to please my father. The purpose of my life has always been about pleasing my father. And now this father, even as I continue to please him, I will be separated from him, not because I refused to please him, but because I was resolved to please him even unto death. So Jesus poured out his life even unto death, and he sees this cup, this cup, it's an eternal cup of being forsaken by God, of God turning himself away, of the great uniting of father and son, of this great chasm coming between them. As Jesus bears the penalty of sin upon himself, that which he hated, that which he despised, that which brought about the wrath of God, he would hold, he would carry, and he would die for it. And Jesus sees the cup. Think about that cup. What does he see in that cup? He sees rape, he sees murder, He sees defilement. He sees curses. He sees ugliness. That cup. And in the garden, he resolves to drink. To drink that cup. You know, it's one thing to have something happen to you. And it's another thing to know everything you're getting yourself into and then walk into it. You know, a lot of people have lost Children. And I I, I can't think of anything more painful. But if you knew the day that you received that precious little child, that someday, by that child was still young, you would have to put that child back into the arms of Jesus, you might say, I'd rather never have that child so I don't have to go through that pain. Some of you have prodigals, and the thought has come to you before I wish I'd never had this child if I had known how much pain I was going to go through, I might never have gotten married. I might never have gotten pregnant. I might never have given birth. Jesus drank the cup. He looked into that cup. He knew everything it meant. He knew the brutality of men. He knew the separation from his father. He knew exactly what he was drinking. And as he took the cup, and voluntarily took it down and drank it for us, his blood vessels began to rupture. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, you have not yet resisted sin to the shedding of blood. Everything in Jesus revolted, all of his goodness, all of his generosity, all of that nature that Pleased the Father from the beginning of time, revolted and was repulsed by this cup. But he drank it. He drank it for you, for me. And he rises from this agony of prayer to find his disciples sleeping. They slept. I'm so one of the disciples. We need a Savior who does what crippled humanity cannot do. This is our Savior. Now, in the garden, in this serenity, in this sobering time, after an angel has just come and ministered to Jesus, what did that angel do? I think he said, all of heaven, all of heaven is so for you. Please let us strike the company that is coming against you. And Jesus said, no, this work's not for angels. This is my work alone. Stand back, sheath your swords. This is for me alone. And into this serenity, Judas enters with a multitude of armed guards with torches and bindings to bind Jesus with swords and clubs, and they come in this darkness. And Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. Oh, the depths of betrayal and deceit. He comes up to Jesus. He calls him friend, even as he is plotting and identifying Jesus to the enemy so that Jesus can be arrested and bound and given over to crucifixion. He uses affection and affectionate terms As a means to betray Jesus. Peter, no doubt, startled from sleep. Remember the last time he was startled from sleep? He announces, Lord, let us build three tabernacles. And God rebukes him. This time, Peter's startled from sleep and he draws his sword and he just strikes at the first thing. And think about it how ineffective is Peter's fight? I mean, he doesn't slay anybody. He doesn't send the forces, the multitude that's come against Jesus running like, oh, they've got swords, let's get out of here. All he does is whop off the high priest's servant's ear. His endeavor does so little, little to curtail the enemy. In fact, it just makes it more confusing. And Jesus stops Peter and says, permit even this. Peter must stand back and allow the circumstances to play out. The predetermined will of God to come to pass. Jesus undoes Peter's damage and heals the servant's ear. Then Jesus directly addresses the multitude that is standing with Judas. And this multitude is comprised of the chief priests, the captains of the temple soldiers and elders, and they have prepared themselves to come against a robber armed with swords and clubs, poised for a battle. They have chosen a specific time when Jesus is in private. It's dark. It's not the day, it's the night. Not in the temple and not when people are around and He is teaching, but Jesus says, "'This is your hour.'" and the power of darkness. I want to pause right here and say that evil only received an hour. We are going to have eternity with Jesus with no sorrow, no death, no pain, no tears. And because Jesus gave evil an hour, he limited its scope. He limited the power of evil And he limited the timetable of evil forever, forever. He said, here's your hour. And you've got about 59 minutes left. This is your hour. I'm giving you this time to do as much damage, your worst. But then I'm going to take eternity. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to bring light and glory. Jesus puts a cap on evil. Peter and the disciples, they forsake Jesus in the garden, we're told in Mark. And in the meantime, Jesus is bound and he's led to Ananias' house. Bound because they're so intimidated by his power. Though they have him alone, Jesus alone. They are so intimidated that they bind him as if that will hold him back. And he goes with them as a lamb to the slaughter. He is 100% cooperative. He's not fighting. He's not screaming. He's not calling down legions of angels. He's not even saying, hey, you disciples, you come back and fight. He is silent, and he goes with them. And his trial begins with false accusations and witnesses and brutality. And we're told at this point, Peter and John come into the court of the high priest's house. In those days, and you can actually see models of the high priest's house, houses of noblemen in those days, would, you would enter into these large, formidable doors, and you would come into a courtyard, and every room was built around the courtyard. And what they would do in order to allow enough light and ventilation for this, they would have drapes, and the drapes would be pulled back from these rooms or they'd be closed. And so no doubt, as his trial begins, because people are coming and going, they've got this great room at the high priest's house, probably his largest room, his room for entertaining. And the curtains are pulled back. And Peter is there, and he can hear the angry raised voices of accusations against Jesus. He can hear the blasphemy shouted out at him. He could hear the sound of the fists being pummeled into Jesus. And he was powerless to defend Jesus. There was nothing he could do. He followed at a distance. He warmed himself at a courtyard fire. And then he began to deny Jesus. First, it's a servant girl who looks at him intently. And she says, you are of them. And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Another who saw him said, you are one of them. And he says, no. An hour later, a third accused him. Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Three times Peter denies even knowing Jesus, any association with Jesus. Suddenly, as morning begins to dawn, after Peter's third denunciation, the rooster crows. And Peter looks at the room where Jesus is being brutalized and the Savior looks at Peter and their eyes lock. Jesus didn't give Peter a disappointed look. It was Peter, have faith, have faith. I knew this would happen, Peter. Peter, you will return. But Peter is so disappointed in himself At this very hour of Jesus, this man that he said, I'll never deny you. I'll go to prison. I'll go to death. And Peter realizes the weakness, the utter weakness of his own humanity. As Satan had said to God in Job, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give to preserve his life. Peter there is doing all he can to preserve his own life. And Peter goes out realizing what he's done and he weeps bitterly. The trial of Jesus continued into the morning and he is led into the council meeting of the chief priests and scribes at Caiaphas' house. And the high priest demands, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Jesus is filled with wisdom They have taken nothing from him. He is as wise as he ever was. And he says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 tells us about a great white throne where every man, who has ever lived, will stand. And John, the author of Revelation said, blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Those of us who have believed in Jesus, we won't stand before that great white throne. We will be the audience. But those who have not believed, every man will give account before that throne. So Jesus is saying to this high priest in this company, we will meet again. But the next time you see me, I will be at the right hand of the power on high. Even as he had told them, reminding them of Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. They would be reminded of another time that they were questioning Jesus And Jesus turned the question to them. These men are beyond faith. No matter what they see or hear, they will not believe. They've had the testimony of Jesus for three years. As he's healed the blind, he's raised the dead. Nothing will change their minds or situations. As C.S. Lewis loved to point out, the door of hell is locked from the inside, not the outside. Men lock themselves into hell to keep God out it is all predetermined and man's decision is ratified in heaven. Then they say, are you then the son of God? And Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am. In other words, your own hearts are testifying to it. Your own hearts know what you're doing, you are doing intentionally. It's not by mistake. If that were not the threat, They wouldn't be trying him. There was a deliberation and intentionality in their evil. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. This word that they would use to condemn Jesus would one day be the same word that would condemn their souls before God. Jesus did what fallen humanity could never do. Isaiah 63 5 says I looked but there was no one to uphold therefore my own arm brought salvation for me God looked there was not a man that could live righteously there is none righteous no not one no one could live righteously fallen humanity was incapable of saving themselves. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even our best efforts to be like Jesus fail. Our sacred moments are fraught with argument and ambition. Jesus' revelation are often lost to us because of our self-boasts and unrealistic self-expectations. We sleep while he is praying and interceding for us, we deny him while he is being tried and suffering. Why? Because our humanity is fallen, corrupted by sin, laced with self preservation. We are lost beyond our ability to find our way back. But Jesus established the new covenant for us, he died for us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet enemies, shaking our fists at God, rebels, Jesus Christ established the new covenant for us that we could enter in. He did it because he knew we could not live up to the law of God or even to our own law or standards or even to the life of Jesus. He did what we could not do. Not only were we not worthy to do what he did, but we were unable On our best days, we are unable to emulate the posture of Jesus by our attempts, by our law-keeping, by our self-imposed resolves. This is all to say we need Jesus. We need what Jesus has done. I was walking out of um, a Friday morning, and this girl came up to me, this young woman, and she says, I did not want Jesus to die for me. I did not ask him to do it. He had no right to do it for me. And I said, I I didn't know what to say. I said, well, I did. I needed him. I'm so glad he did. Because I realized that I could never do for myself what he's done for me. That I could never save myself. And if it weren't for Jesus, I would be lost forever from the presence of God because he did for me what I could never do for myself. Jesus initiated the covenant. We didn't even know how desperately we needed it when he did it. And Jesus invites us through faith, simply believing in his merits, in his goodness, in his generosity, by faith, believing in his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice and the Efficacy of his blood to forgive our sins and purify our hearts. His perfect righteousness now given to us so that we may boldly enter into the throne room of grace to God as our father. Not just as sovereign, not a master, but so great is the covenant that Jesus has made for us. That he is our high priest pleading for us, for everything we need, for all the riches of heaven to be given to us because of what he's done and opening up the doors so we can approach God as father, as father, as not just benefactor, but daddy, Abba, my own jesus intercedes he knows what we need to endure to return to be able to strengthen our brethren jesus drank the cup for us while we slept jesus suffered for us even when and while we denied any association with him so how can we become like jesus because that's the ultimate goal not by emulation but by being filled with jesus Fill yourself with Jesus. Eat the bread of his life. Drink the cup of his blood. Take the elements of salvation he offers you by faith. And eat again and again, remembering what he's done for you. When you fail, go back to the communion table and remember his body that was broken for you. Go back to the cup and drink it. And remember that his blood was shed, that you might be forgiven, that you might have one new start after another, that all things might be passed away and all things might become new, be nourished, be sustained by what Jesus has done for us. Remember his life, not yours. Remember his work, not yours. Remember his great love, not yours. Remember his power, not yours. Remember his merit, not yours. Jesus paid it all. Lay your deadly doing down, down, down at the feet of Jesus. And enter into this new covenant saying, Lord, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I receive what Jesus has done for me. It is his life then that becomes manifested in us. Not by us trying to manifest his life, but by Jesus coming and living in us. That's what the new covenant has done. It has put Jesus in us, in us. So that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Let's stand and remember again that we have been crucified with Christ. He
0: did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We sing the hymn, Jesus Paid It All, and that certainly is true. He willingly offered Himself to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have true and everlasting life. Jesus initiated the new covenant, and it is ours for the taking by simply having faith and receiving the gift of salvation that Jesus offers to all. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at the ultimate question of life as we continue our Jesus Magnified study in the Gospel of Luke with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com.